we who preach here at Nova have taken on a monumental task of explaining to you some of the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, today we come in our study to the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, and we're looking today at the sin that cannot be forgiven. So look at Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Give your careful attention to this God's holy word for us today. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let us pray. Father, we ask your help now both in the speaking and in the listening. Might your word be plain to us. Might we hear and understand. Might we listen and obey for the sake of our greater usefulness to you and for the glory of your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. These so-called hard sayings of Jesus are passages that Bible readers have wrestled with through all the centuries of the Christian church. Verses that make us ask, what in the world was Jesus getting at here? Or even, surely Jesus didn't really mean that, did he? Uh, remember, our goal as preachers and listeners is not to explain these hard sayings away, but to explain them. 
as I said when we first started this series, if after listening to me or Pastor Dean or Pastor Dave talk about one of these sayings, you find that saying easier to accept or more neatly fitting in with the way you're already living your life, you probably can be very sure that we are wrong in our interpretation. If you find us explaining these hard sayings in a way that strips them of their bite and takes away their edge, then most certainly our explanations are faulty. Jesus meant to get our attention. He knew what he was doing when he gave these hard sayings. But more than get our attention, he means to call us to lives of greater devotion to him, of more full obedience of him. And I think he's gotten our attention with today's hard saying about the unforgivable sin. Uh, anyone who has been a pastor for any length of time has encountered people who are worried about, if not obsessed with, the possibility that they have committed that one sin that is outside the reach of God's forgiveness. And I think you can understand their anxiety. If there is something that you can do that excludes you finally and permanently from the grace of God, if there is something that God in all his mercy will not or cannot overlook, something that places you beyond all hope for this life and the life to come, then you do well to wonder what that is. And once you discover what it is, to make sure that you never do it. The problem is that some of us are very fragile emotionally and mentally. And we're given to excesses of anxiety and guilt. And so we're especially vulnerable to suggestions that we have committed the unforgivable sin or that we might unknowingly commit this unforgivable sin and, and thus be judged guilty and condemned to live for all eternity apart from God. It's a very real problem that comes up frequently in the lives of those of us who serve God's people. In my experience of pastoring, uh, I've encountered mostly two kinds of people in regard to the sin that cannot be forgiven. Uh, first, there are those who think they know what the unforgivable sin is, and they think that they or someone they love has committed it. Uh, some years ago, a pastor was visited by a college student who in great distress told the pastor that one day when she was a young teenager, she had gotten so angry with her mother who was an outspoken Christian that she locked herself in her room and yelled every curse and every oath and every foul word she could think of against God. You see, she was mad at her mother, but she took it out on God because her mother was an outspoken Christian. And that experience haunted that young woman, and here she was some years later asking the pastor if she had committed the unforgivable sin, since in the Gospels it is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. She lived in terror because she had cursed God, and she equated that with the blasphemy about which Jesus warns us here. And down through the ages of the Christian church, other sins have been tagged as the 
unforgivable one as churches and people have tried to make sense out of what Jesus said. And so some are worried and even terrified because they think they understand what it is and they know that they have done it. The second kind of person I've encountered is the one who thinks the sin that cannot be forgiven is something that he or she might inadvertently do that cannot be repented of and therefore forgiven by God. They view the unforgivable sin as sort of a gotcha, God's gotcha. They think that God has a long list of no-nos and that he has checked off each one of those no-nos as forgivable. Murder, forgivable. Anger, forgivable. Adultery, forgivable. And so on. But he's left one sin unchecked. Maybe capriciously on a whim, or perhaps he's established a whole new category called the sins that cannot be forgiven, and he's put this one action or this one attitude on that list. As I was thinking about this in preparation to preach, Groucho Marx, of all people, came to mind. Now, I hesitate to bring Groucho up because it reveals how my mind works. And this is one of those times when you could help me by nodding affirmatively or uh, smiling to let me know that I'm somewhat normal, that uh, your mind works somewhat the same way as mine does. Some of you are nodding the wrong way. <laughs> well, I thought of Groucho Marx and this old TV show that he had called You Bet Your Life. Do you remember it? Whoa, careful. <laughs> you're, you're dating yourself, if you uh, recall it. You're revealing your age. The show had a simple concept. Two people, usually a man and a woman, would answer trivia questions to win cash. But before the quiz, Groucho Marx would interview them. And before each show, a magic word was selected. And if the contestant said that magic word in the course of that interview, that conversation with Groucho, he or she would win a kitty of money that was added to each time the word went on said. And at the start of each show, you might recall, Groucho would say, say the magic word and win $2,000 or $300 or whatever the kitty contained. But, and this is very important, the magic word was never revealed to the contestants. If they happened to say it while talking with Groucho, a stuffed duck, I'm not making this up, would drop from the ceiling on a line. You see the duck there on the screen behind me, I think, with the prize money in his beak and the magic word on a placard around his neck. Uh, I'm kind of sorry that I started down this track. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think it would take so long to explain it to you. I, I really want my sermons to be more about God than about Groucho. Bear with me. Well, many people view this unforgivable sin as kind of like the magic word. You can take Groucho off the screen if you haven't uh, already. 
that it is some largely unknown rule that God has made that, that you might accidentally break and thus place yourself outside the reach of his grace, God's gotcha. And you can understand the fear in which this kind of person lives and the neurotic guilt which permeates their being and the despair which takes over their spiritual and emotional life. What is this sin that cannot be forgiven? To say it simply, it is unbelief. Refusal to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And here's where following the basic rules of understanding the Bible help us out a great deal. One rule is let the context determine what a verse means. You don't just rip these words out of context and assign them whatever meaning you want them to have or whatever meaning you fear they may have. They have to be left in their context. That's true of all the hard sayings of Jesus. They're understood clearly only when we see the situation in which Jesus spoke them. We understand the unforgivable sin when we understand the context in which Jesus brought it up, who he said this to and why he said it. The context reveals the meaning. So here's the scene, here's the situation. For some time, Jesus had been teaching and healing people all throughout Galilee. His reputation grew and his fame spread and people were coming to Jesus by the hundreds and even the thousands, all wanting healing or deliverance from evil spirits for themselves or for people they loved. Look at verse 7 in this third chapter of Mark. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, from coast to the Jordan and beyond, from north to south. People were flocking to Jesus. And then Mark goes on in verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to, pe to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Well, naturally, the religious leaders were concerned with Jesus, this upstart preacher and healer and exorcist who did he think he was drawing such crowds being in such favor among the people Jesus did not represent them he wasn't endorsed by the establishment he didn't have their official seal of approval on his life and his ministry and so the religious leaders went from Jerusalem to Galilee to observe Jesus in action to examine him and when they saw him and what he was doing, they could not deny that he was delivering people from bondage to demons. That was plain to see. But in their stubbornness and hardness of heart, they accounted for his ministry in an unbelievable way. They accounted for his ministry this way. They said, he's doing this because he himself is possessed 
by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, that is Satan, the prince of demons. And it is in his power that he is driving out the demons. That judgment of theirs on Jesus' ministry is what occasioned Jesus' warning about the sin that cannot be forgiven. First, Jesus points out the ludicrousness of their opinion. He says, in effect, uh, let me get this straight. According to you, uh, Satan is driving out Satan. How does that work? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan's warring kingdom, or Satan's kingdom warring against itself will not last. It destroys itself. And then Jesus compares himself to an intruder who enters a strong man's house in order to carry off the strong man's possessions. He says, first, I'd have to tie that strong man up. And Jesus is saying, how can it be that it is by Satan's power I am doing this? It cannot be. In fact, in delivering people, I am warring against Satan and his power. I've tied him up and am carting off those whom he possesses. I'm delivering them from the kingdom of this evil one, the evil one, into the kingdom of love and light and God. The ministry of Jesus is bound together with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why attributing to Satan what Jesus is doing is called blasphemy. To deny the ministry of Jesus is to, deny, is to deny the power of the Spirit. It is the power of God's Spirit that enables Jesus to do what he does. Remember how at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went to the synagogue at his hometown, Nazareth. It says just prior to that account that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And then he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to teach them by saying, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am he who was promised. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I am the anointed one of God. That's the impetus. That's the motivation. That's the power behind my work. And certainly that experience was in Jesus' mind when he is accused of being Satan's tool by the religious authorities. And there follows hard after that the warning about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But did you notice as I read the text this morning that even here in issuing this warning, Jesus cannot depart from the good news. 
He cannot fail to announce the gospel, the annou to announce the purpose of his coming. All sins and blasphemies of mankind will be forgiven. That's the good news. Jesus has come into our world to live and die under the weight of our sins so that we might have forgiveness from God. That's the good news. God's forgiveness is in view even as Jesus utters this solemn warning. Jesus has come to free the captives, to forgive sins, to give life to the dead, to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, to heal and restore God's broken creation every which way. All sins will be forgiven, except this one. Refusal to believe that I am who I am. Refusal to hear and heed the testimony of God in his Son by his Spirit to Jesus as Savior and Lord and God. The identity of Jesus is the main theme of Mark's gospel. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, every time he speaks, people ask, who is this one who teaches on his own authority, who heals the sick, who forgives sins, who quiets storms at sea, who restores sight, who raises the dead, who frees people from bondage to the evil one. Who is this one? And that is the very question that the teachers of the law were asking. Who is he? How does he do this? And they got the answer wrong. And they attributed to Satan the work of God. They didn't believe what the Spirit was saying about the Son. That's why Jesus said they were verging on the one sin that cannot be forgiven. Unbelief. If you don't believe, you won't repent. You won't be forgiven. Mark earlier wrote that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near in my person. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe the good news. There is a sin that cannot be forgiven. Call it unbelief or refusal to believe. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, calling the Spirit of God, who testifies to Jesus, calling the Spirit a liar. Well, that's heavy stuff. What's the significance of it for us? Why are we paying attention to the sin that cannot be forgiven? In looking at this and the other hard sayings, we are not engaged in a mere intellectual exercise. It's not about figuring out some tough thing and then coming to dazzle you as I've dazzled you this morning with a picture of Groucho, to dazzle you with our understanding of this difficult passage. That's not the point. As I've often said, we pay attention to God's word not merely to get smart, but to get right, to get right with God. So if you are a believer and are troubled today, Jesus wants to move you from insecurity to security, 
from intermittent doubt to constant faith. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven now and forever. There is nothing you need worry about. There is no God's gotcha for you. You are part of my family, says Jesus. Notice how at the end of this passage, the family of Jesus calls Jesus out from his meeting with the people who were crowded around. And Jesus, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he says, these are my family, these who do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Jesus said, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That's the good news. But the good news can be bad news to those who don't believe. If you are not a believer, Jesus intends this morning to move you from unbelief to belief. If you don't believe, believe. I guess I can't make it much simpler than that, can I? If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, just believe. Believe. Come to Jesus this morning and say, I know you are the Son of God, sent to forgive my sins, to make me whole, to bring me to life now and forever with God, come to Jesus and believe. I'm privileged to have a heritage of hymnody. That is, I grew up singing hymns and I can't get them out of my mind. Sometimes they're like earworms and I wish I could not hear them. But sometimes it's almost as if they are a gift from God that help me understand what God is saying to me in a particular moment. And as I prepared to preach this past week, the old song, Come Ye Sinners, came to mind. Listen to it. We won't sing it, and I won't sing it for you, but listen to it. Hear the gracious invitation of Jesus. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify, true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him come ye weary heavy laden lost and ruined by the fall if you tarry till you're better you will never come at all come to Jesus let us pray
Father, we praise you for your faithfulness in speaking to us through your word and by your spirit. You have spoken to us today. You even now are by your spirit calling people to belief. Have your way with these people, I pray. May all come to believe, come to know you, whom to know is life eternal. And so may the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the help and power and fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you from this place and forevermore until we all sit in God's heavenly family where there's fullness of joy forever.